Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. The title of this presentation, Speaking Truth to Power, um, uh, poses an extraordinary number of interesting challenges and is layered with a great deal of complexity. It fuses morality, ethics and principles with politics, pragmatism and compromise and it draws on the centrality of effective communication and understanding the important nature of relationships in all that we do. The challenge of speaking truth to power is amplified in an environment where there are competing needs, where the alleviation of suffering across those competing needs is acute and where they all are worthy of greater funding and support by the government. Speaking truth to power compels an obligation on those doing so to examine all information rigorously and when and with an open mind. It requires discipline and demands us to be honest in our engagement and ready to listen and consider outcomes that are meritorious, which have integrity and attempt to deal with the full complexity of the challenge at hand. It also helps if they're implementable and capable of working. The other part of this topic is, or the other part of this is what actually is truth, what constitutes it but I'm not going there today because there's nowhere near enough time. However, of the greatest importance is the reality that speaking truth to power alone is not what counts most. What counts most is engaging with power in a genuine and strategic manner and finding ways to make it an instrument of good, to better the lives of all, including the most vulnerable amongst us. That is the yardstick by which effectiveness should be measured. Speaking to power is easy, attacking it is easier still, but trying to redirect it for the purposes I've just described is where the greatest challenges reside. This challenge is at its most difficult and most confronting when the social policy issue fits the definition of a wicked problem. In a paper developed by the Australian Public Service Commission, designed to assist public servants dealing with issues such as climate change and Indigenous disadvantage. A wicked problem is described as one, amongst other things, that is highly resistant to resolution, is often characterised by disagreement about the causes of the problem and the best ways to tackle them. Attempts to address them often lead to unforeseen consequences. They usually have no clear solution, may never be completely solved and the challenge is to find the best way to manage them instead. And they are socially complex and involve coordinated action by a range of governmental and civil society stakeholders. So what does this mean in terms of how we engage? The first place, the first place to start when contemplating how to deal with speaking to people in power is not by focusing on those who hold it. The first point of focus has to be yourself. In preparing to do this, one needs to be completely honest about the purpose and nature of your own personal investment and motivations. We need to be confident that without, we need to be confident in our ethical position and the scope for engaging without compromising those ethics. And most of all, you need to be prepared, you need to be prepared with the information you want to present and the robustness of it. 
our ability to balance off competing demands and accommodate compromises as we pursue our pr primary objectives are dependent on this. It's something we need to be comfortable with because the reality is we rarely get everything we want other than my two boys uh, and the dogs. Uh, doesn't matter, I digress. In particular, our own personal political allegiances should remain private. They should not unduly influence the genuineness of our engagement. It is advancing the interests of those we represent that should drive the encounter, regardless of who is in government. And it is dangerous to assume that a person from one particular side of politics would be more supportive of your agenda than a person from the other. I've got hundreds of examples of that that perhaps we can talk about in the, in the Q&A session. Having sorted, sorted this out, we must... The next most crucial thing is to shift your focus on an understanding of the motivations of the people you are trying to engage. Understanding this and establishing the basis for building effective relationships is vital. It might sound obvious, but how often have you studied the people you are meeting with in order to understand them better and therefore how to communicate with them better? Think about it for a minute. We usually prepare for all sorts of things that we need to do. Um, but do we prepare for building a relationship in situations where you're about to speak to government? Do you have a plan mapped out in your head? These may sound like fairly basic questions, and they are, but they are nevertheless crucial and it's extraordinary how often people don't do it. Talking purely from my own perspective, this is my view, if I'm honest with myself about my intent and focused on who I represent, if I am clear about my ethical position and obligations and if I am confident that the position I bring to the table is grounded in reality and supported by the facts, then I know I am ready to speak to power and influence power. That doesn't in any way guarantee success, but in reaching this point and engaging accordingly, it situates me in the best place I can be and gives me the right to expect the same from others engaged in the dialogue also. It legitimises holding on to what I believe to be true and in the best interests of those I aim to, to support. Um, and I want you to hold on to that because it becomes relevant to the later part of the discussion. The fact that if you prepare yourself properly, if you are honest and you approach it with integrity, you do have the right to expect it of the others. The challenge of talking truth to or influencing power was never, has never been sharper for me than it was last year when I was appointed as a member of the Prime Minister's expert panel on asylum seekers. I'd like to reflect on some aspects of that process and issue as means of putting that discussion, this discussion in a real context. The terms of, the, of reference for the panel were essentially about how to find ways of reducing the loss of life at sea or minimising um, the risks people would take in trying to seek protection in Australia. I was of course aware of the considerable scepticism about the government's motives for establishing the panel. I'm not sure why. Uh, the impasse with the parliament was, was entrenched in shallow rhetoric, political opportunism and a deep lack of trust. In spite of my scepticism, I accepted the invitation because I'd come to the view that from a moral point of view, the increasing rate of deaths at sea had reached a point at, and was on a trajectory that I could personally no longer accept. 
I could no longer accept it when increasing numbers of our clients became grief-stricken on top of their pre-existing trauma by news that family members had perished. I could not continue to accept it when casualties increasingly included children. I could not continue ex to accept it when the rate of exploitation and profit by smugglers was ramping up levels destined to cause more suffering. I couldn't continue to accept it the distorting impact of this on our humanitarian program, in particular the devastating effect of virtually wiping out hope of family reunion for refugees. And most of all, I could no longer accept it when I knew we had the ability to do more and better, to protect thousands more people each year and to do so without them having to die on their way to Australia. The panel's work was not just about government though. It was about the parliament as a whole and the sector and the wider Australian community and how we might dislodge ourselves from the atrophied debate in which we had been stuck for so long. So taking these introductory comments in, into, um, into account, how did the panel go about preparing its case to present to government and the parliament? Firstly, we established early that we were comfortable with what, what we were engaged in because of the importance of the issue from a humanitarian and public policy perspective. Then we set about building the evidence by seeking an, an, and analysing a vast base of material and information. We received input from hundreds of diverse, people of hundreds of diverse backgrounds in writing and in person. We met with every relevant government agency and were provided with detailed reports and, and analysis not readily available. Through all of this, we established an enormous depth of information to consider and guide our thinking. One written submission, my favourite, which sustained me throughout, was simply three words. It said, experts my ass." <laughs> Perhaps the author had in mind the cartoon of Scott Adams. Sorry, am I allowed to say that? Uh, <laughs> Perhaps the author had in mind the cartoon of Scott Adams, creator of Dil the Dilbert character, who asked, how can you tell someone is an expert? And the answer is, their business card says expert on it. <laughs> a more generous interpretation of the author's intent is that we were tasked with a subject of extraordinary complexity and we should be suitably modest about what could be accomplished. There was no risk of us underestimating the magnitude and difficulty of the job. It was in this context that I was introduced to the term wicked problem and how appropriate. The amount of information we had to absorb was formidable. In the first week, we held discussions with all of the leaders and key representatives of each party within the parliament, with a cross-party parliamentary group and with some independents. We did not go back to them until the morning of the report's launch and did not brief the government about the report's contents at any prior stage. And I'll explain why. In the following weeks, we met with a wide range of academics, non-government agencies, specialists in refugee law, mental health experts and distinguished Australian citizens such as Mal Malcolm Fraser. Importantly, we met with representatives of refugee communities themselves who were both generous and dignified in their engagement and contribution. We listened to the views of people and organisations who came to speak their version of the truth to us and they did. The panel was determined, and this is why we didn't go back to government afterwards, the panel was determined to insulate the objectivity of the group and independence of the report from undue influence by any source or party. This was of vital importance as we sought to preserve the ability for us to present a report and seek acceptance of it as truly independent.
This was both a point of integrity for the panel and strategically important if the recommendations were to be accepted. But on reflection, we were not only dealing with a wicked problem, but we were also operating in a pretty wicked environment. The tenor of discussion about issues relating to refugees and asylum seekers can generate a destructive level of antagonism and distorts the truth. Inflammatory language is used to misrepresent the motivations and lived experiences of refugees and asylum seekers. There is a reluctance by many, from all perspectives, to analyse information objectively and to allow new information and trends to be considered with the depth and honesty that is required. Critically, there is a deep, cavernous lack of trust between the key players, government, opposition, Greens and the sector, making engagement and genuine dialogue fraught and progress, actually. I think such approaches are unhelpful at best. They get in the way of robust analysis and dialogue and cooperative action and, we need the, and the cooperative action we need between key governmental and non-governmental stakeholders. They diminish our ability to speak with a clarion voice or to, be, or to maintain a clear-eyed view of the issues needed to be addressed. It's, don't worry, it's fine. I, um, I did that in front of a minister one time who managed to point me out. The United but what's the scale of the issues that we're trying to deal with for those who aren't familiar with refugee issues? The United Nations High Commission for Refugees estimates that there are 42.5 million um, forcibly displaced persons worldwide. Of these, around 15.2 million are refugees, those which are people outside of their countries of origin in need of protection. Of the 800,000 people out of that 15.2 million um, that the United Nations identified for resettlement in 2012, only about 80,000 places were made available internationally. In the 1990s, the average time frame for a protracted refugee situation was nine years. That's for how long they, were, they lived in camps. Um, today, the average protracted situation has leapt to 20 years. So you have whole generations of people living in camps. Afghans represent one in every four refugees in the world, with 95% of them living in Pakistan and Iran. In 2014, Allied troops will depart from Afghanistan and there is a widely held view that the ability of the Afghanistan government to maintain stability will be seriously compromised. Of the 1.6 million Iraqi refugees, around, around 1 million live in Syria. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees reports that the recent Syrian conflict has generated over a million refugees. Imagine the double jeopardy confronting the million Iraqi refugees who had already fled there. South Africa and Kenya host hundreds of thousands of refugees with the Dadaab refugee camp housing more than 559,000 refugees on its own. And in Malaysia, there are well over 100,000 people registered with UNHCR and it's estimated that a further 30,000 will get registered before the end of this year. This is but a glimpse of the myriad of challenges present in this field of work and provides some insight into why this global humanitarian issue fits the definition of a truly wicked problem. I've talked about the importance of preparing yourself, of understanding your own motivation and of understanding the people you seek to influence. I've also talked about the, the importance of understanding your own ethical position and being able to hold on to that. I want to explain here, which links 
to another element from the introductory comments. The ethical conundrum that we grappled with is a part of what, uh, as a part of the panel, and what I mean by this issue. I hope to use it not so much to highlight the depth, or not so much to highlight that there is an absolute right or an absolute wrong in this area, but more so to demonstrate the depth and complexity of tackling such a wicked issue. How hard can it be, and should, how hard it can be, and should be to confront not just government power but the power within ourselves to go to places where we've not been before and where we feel unable to go. How hard it can be to confront power and not only talk to it but influence it for the greater good without diminishing your own morality, ethics or objectives. The ethical considerations contained within this issue frankly have the capacity to cave your head in. They for example, there is a genuine ethical conundrum about preventing people risking their lives in search of protection. The case against intervening has sound ethical arguments to support its position, such as the right of people who fear persecution or death to do or risk whatever it takes to find safety. That is a position I've argued previously and many others have argued as well. Some critics of the report argue that the recommendations, sorry. Some critics of the report argue that the recommendations and starting premise are wrong. They argue that using the prevention of loss of life at sea as a basis for recommendations in support of regional processing on Nauru, Manus Island and Malaysia is emotive and, imp and ignores important legal and other considerations. In particular, they challenge the ethics because they argue that we should not do anything that we know will cause harm to others and that the transfer of people to processing centres such as the ones on Nauru and Manus Island, as was done last time round, will and has caused harm. I agree with all of this. In particular, I acknowledge that the way in which the, re the regional processing centres have been established to date has not been in accordance with the recommendations of the panel, a source of immense personal frustration. I believe that as a consequence it has caused harm to some people and I believe that every measure must be taken to remedy this and apply the policy as it was intended in order to prevent such harm from occurring again. Critics reason that refugees die all over the world. As one parliamentarian and some advocates suggested to me, so why is it any different in this case? The points, made, the points made in this case are both accurate and valid, but the question is, does it make it right? On the other side of the ethical conundrum is the case that we should intervene to prevent people risking their lives and in this case dying at sea. That if we could do more to prevent people dying within our sphere of influence, then we should do so. While I agree wholeheartedly that we should never implement policies that deliberately set out to harm I also believe that we should not allow harm to occur through inaction when, it is, when we know it, it exists and is within our remit to respond. The mere fact that it is beyond our immediate gaze and allowing people to continue to die on unnecessarily, unnecessary perilous boat journeys is difficult to justify on ethical grounds also. Importantly for me, was the reality that the considerable numbers of women, children and babies, often whom have little choice in the decision but who have significantly higher chances of dying when a boat sinks 
weighed heavily on my thoughts. In the end, the panel came down on the side that it was more ethical to do whatever we could to prevent people from dying unnecessarily, that the current and likely future number of deaths at sea were too great to just accept. It was from this ethical position that we needed, therefore, to construct a package of recommendations. In response, the major emphasis of our report was the development of a regional protection and processing framework. The primary goal, as stated in the foreword, was to create a fairer, larger, faster and safer pathway for refugees to obtain protection. This was the backbone of the report, but you would hardly know that from the reaction and focus of the media and the response of the government, opposition and Greens to date. Critical to achieving this were recommendations such as increasing Australia's humanitarian program to 20,000 places immediately, the largest in 30 years, and then to 27,000 places over the next five years. Adding a further 4,000 places to the family reunion stream of the general migration program to be held exclusively for families of people who had arrived in Australia and thereby unclogging, unclogging the, uh, the barrier to family reunion for other refugees. For those who know prior to the panel's recommendations, um, the waiting time for family reunion for refugees out of the humanitarian program had blown out to 21 years. Now that basically meant they would never ever be reunited with their families again. And we know from our work that family reunion is one of the most critical restorative elements in terms of their wellbeing. And in addition, there was the provision of an additional $70 million per annum for UNHCR to register and process applications more quickly and for civil society groups to provide care and assistance to asylum seekers across the region so that they would not have to keep moving and risk their lives. These are all things that we in the sector, and I've been working in the sector now for 25 years, had been hoping to achieve for years but never really believed we'd get to. However, the other thing in being honest about this that we had to confront was that in attempting to create a new fairer regional system, if it was to be effective at preventing people from drowning, then we would also need measures that discourage people from going around that system. So if you built a system and it took a couple of years, 18 months, two years, two and a half years, all time frames that refugee communities and NGOs said were acceptable. If it took that long to process someone but they were supported and taken care of, then that would be okay. But if a smuggler says, well, don't wait that long, we'll get you there in a week, then the whole edifice of that regional framework starts to crumble and support for it, particularly the financial support, would evaporate. This is where the wicked nature of the problem really played out for me. In order to emphasise the fairness and equity of the proposed system and to preserve the political and financial support it requires, there needed to be measures that would create disincentives for anyone to undermine it. Here I'm not talking about asylum seekers per se, I'm referring to the systemic undermining by people smuggling organisations. To prevent this, we felt it was necessary to have the capacity to put people who would sought an advantage by going around the system back into it where they would be treated on the same basis as everybody else. Therefore, in addition to all of the measures designed to create incentives for staying, 
with the proposed regional system, we also recommended measures not to punish, as some people have described, but to, but to discourage people from risking their lives while that system is created. They included reintroducing processing centres on Nauru and Manus Island, building on and implementing the Malaysia arrangement and increased cooperation with Malaysia. Now, I don't have to go into, I don't have time to go into all the reasons why those were chosen, um, but the options, I can guarantee you, were extremely limited. To achieve this, the panel recommended that a principle of no advantage be established to guide the policy. It would I would like to take just a few minutes to describe what this principle is about because everybody I've heard refer to it in the past uh, however many months has got it wrong. As, under, as an underpinning component of the regional processing and protection framework, the no advantage principle was conceived as a basis for greater fairness in the processing of a person's refugee application and for the provision of resettlement to those found to be in need of protection. It is not a test but a guiding principle that it aims to achieve that fairness for asylum seekers regardless of their capacity to engage people smugglers by making the necessity and any subsequent advantage obtained by, through that redundant. So if you were a single mother with three children in Malaysia or Indonesia and didn't have access to the resources to engage a smuggler, you would not continuously miss out on your processing and an opportunity to be resettled because large numbers of people were able to continue to go around. That was... That was the underlying premise of the no advantage principle. It does not require an asylum seeker to be subject to extended periods of time in a regional processing centre on Nauru and Manus, as some have suggested. On transferring people back into that system and removing the advantage, it's also incumbent on us to not disadvantage those people further. The whole issue is to simply treat them the same as, as they would have been otherwise. Now I know that's distressing for people because it's not the outcome they thought they paid for from smugglers but the panel's recommendations and report was not about stopping people seeking asylum or receiving protection. It was about increasing the opportunities for, receiving, for, for gaining protection but doing it in a safer and, uh, and better way. How am I going, mate? Um, Claims that it, that, it, that it will take five years or that a person should be automatically held in such centres for five years, as one politician, aspiring politician minister said, are wrong and were never contemplated as necessary by us. Claims that the no advantage principle would mean people would be locked up for 65 years um, or so are simply ridiculous. However, in understanding the risks associated with these measures, and there are real risks, I still, we still have clients from the last time Nauru was used, understanding the risks associated with these measures and the clear intent to prevent harm, the panel recommended these arrangements and the application of the no advantage principle had to occur in the context of other protective measures. And those other protective measures include treatment consistent with human rights standards, including no arbitrary detention, appropriate accommodation, appropriate physical and mental health services, access to educational and vocational training programs, application assistance during, 
legal assistance that is, during the preparation of their asylum claims, an appeal mechanism against negative decisions, an independent appeal mechanism, monitoring of care and protection arrangements by a representative group drawn from government and civil society in Australia and Nauru, providing case management assistance to individual applicants being processed in Nauru, and the provision for transferees who are determined to have special needs or be highly vulnerable or who need to be moved for other particular reasons to be transferred back to Australia. Though none of those safeguards existed last time round. They're designed to provide a protective um, layer or barrier to prevent the harm that occurred last time. However, I need to say that at present, these preconditions and safeguards that were set out by the panel and agreed to by the government as policy have not been secured and as a consequence, immediate action is required to remedy this. If, for example, remedial action does not occur and transferred asylum seekers, including children, continue to be detained arbitrarily and processing is further delayed, then nobody should be transferred until all the conditions are satisfied. Manus Island is unambiguously failing to operate in accordance with the safeguards. In my view, all children and their families should be returned to Australia immediately and if processing does not begin soon and open centre arrangements cannot be established, then the ongoing use of a facility on Manus Island should be ended. As I've said publicly to the Minister and the Prime Minister, the safeguards and integrated nature of the recommendations were not optional extras or simply nice ideas to consider. They were essential preconditions for the implementation of a regional processing system to protect the well-being of transferees and prevent harm being done. Given the government's acceptance of the recommendations, if they are not in place, then the government is in violation of its own policy. And I would encourage you all to use the report, and I must say am bewildered by some of my colleagues in the sector for not doing this, to hold them to account. It's their own policy. They accepted all 22 recommendations. Why we don't hold them to account with their own policy is beyond me. We've screamed out for years to have a policy that we could hold them to account to. If I may, I'd also, and that takes me back to that original, that point in the introductory comments where if you've prepared yourself, if you've established your ethical position, if you've developed the information and the basis for maintaining that position and you've honestly and genuinely engaged with the full complexity of the issues, it's your entitlement to accept those who asked you to do it or to who engaged with you to do the same. At present, that's not happening. It's not entirely the government's fault. Uh, the opposition haven't supported all elements and neither have the Greens. The opposition because I don't think they necessarily wanted anything to work before an election and the Greens because, well, that's anyone's guess. But um, I just not quite un I don't quite understand the rationale is what I mean by that. If I, w if I may, I'd also like to point out at this right, and I don't know if you talked about it this morning, but the denial of work rights to people on bridging visas had absolutely nothing to do with the panel's work or the recommendations and it has absolutely nothing to do with the no advantage principle as we envisaged it. Unfortunately, some aspects of the report have been manipulated in, in terms of providing backup to some decisions that were never part of our deliberations. 
In fact, the safeguard about returning people back to Australia for special reasons or for operational purposes, when we framed that recommendation, it actually says and that they would be on the same conditions as other people on bridging visas. At the time of writing that report, people on bridging visas had access to work rights and we would have assumed that that would have followed. Right? Okay. I've got the wind up now. So I just want people to be clear about that. If you hear anyone say, oh, it's because of the no advantage principle or because of the expert panel's report, whack them for me, please. Um, <coughs> Since the completion of the panel's report, many more people have died while the Parliament quibbles about whether it should or shouldn't support the full implementation of the panel's recommendations. In one tragedy, over 100 people died. In another, 60 perished and in another, 33 lost their lives. In one incident, a 13-year-old boy who'd been in the water for 19 hours watched his father, brother and uncle sink below the waterline and at least one person around him had died from a shark attack. Another boat carrying 34 people sank, killing all but one. In March and April this year, several boats sank after having departed Indonesia. On one boat, one boat, said to have been carrying 80 people, sank with only a few survivors. One of them was a 14-year-old boy. There are unconfirmed reports all of the time of many others, all carrying similar numbers of people. What I do know is that if some of these tragedies had, been, had occurred in full view of a television camera or were recorded on an iPhone and uploaded onto YouTube, if the terror on the people's faces was public, if the cries of children were heard and the vision of people being crashed by waves or mauled by sharks flooded our LED screens, then there is no way that our parliament could ignore or avoid uniting to find a better way. There would be no way we could either. However, the sad reality is that they and we don't have to look at it. And because the distress and outrage of the wider public is not drawn into the debate running into an election, they are not compelled to rethink and invest properly in a better way. Dare I say it, but by and large, we're not compelled either. As a consequence, one thing is for sure. Many more children, young people, women and men will die a terrifying, lonely death and those that survive will be devastated and traumatised, suffering from loss and grief for the rest of their lives. So while I acknowledge the absolute legitimacy of the ethical concern not to do any harm and the complete genuineness of concerns that critics raise, I believe that it would be well within our collective capabilities to ensure no harm is done if all of the recommendations of the panel are applied in full. I'd prefer to tackle this challenge of making things work well in places like Nauru um, than to simply accept that further loss of life at sea was more acceptable, even though none of the people I know who argue that alternative position would ever want to see a single person die. I believe we should and can do better. If those who disagree with the package present a better, more effective, more humane, completely implementable plan that addresses the full complexity of the issues, then please, please, please present it and I for one will support it. I'll argue it with any government. Two weeks ago, my staff had to support two young people who had been in search of their family. They received a call late one night at the beginning of April from two members 
of their family that they were boarding a boat in Indonesia. They've not heard from them since. And after searching with DIAC through the centre network, um, we've come up with nothing. In all likelihood, they've not survived. Their boat was not reported as having been in distress and we're not sure how many others boarded that night. One of the men was a father of five, all of whom, with their mother, are left vulnerable in Pakistan. Our clients are shattered, but they cling to some hope that they may yet find them and we will support them for as long as they need it and want it. I want to speak truth to power about this. I want to confront not just the government but the parliament as a whole. I want to do it with honesty and integrity and in acknowledgement of all the complex issues that require consideration and I want to help find the goodness that we are capable of delivering and embedding in our response. But I also want to speak to your power, to the power that resides within this room. I want us to engage with open minds and hearts and climb out of the trenches to see if we can't just find a way to make it better. If we cannot, then what makes us think that our parliament will ever be able to do so? What would, the, what would the point be of speaking truth to power anyway? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Parison. You do speak with, with such great integrity. Um, I'm sorry I had to wind you up, because I, but I really thought this has been such an issue in the room over the last couple of days that it would be a good opportunity to have a bit of a Q&A for 10 minutes. So... Um, we have our microphones there. Does anybody have comments to make uh, or solutions to offer? Please. Sorry, where are we? Over, over here, sorry. Just to your right, Paris. Thank you very much. I like your principle number two of shifting the focus to understand the motivation of others. And I wonder how that might apply to people spunk smugglers. You know, people smugglers were mentioned as being demonised as well in a conversation that I went to in, uh, just last week with the Anglican Archbishop in Fed Square. And um, it just concerns me that Indonesia's right on our doorstep and we somehow lack, I guess, the ability to really engage and put money in there too with where the problem may be. Yep. And I'm wonder if people smugglers are suffering from poverty themselves. They'll do anything to get a ship out there. And how do we then apply that principle to our neighbours and try and work ethically with them instead of demonising them? No. It's a very, very good question. Thank you. Um, first of all, I just want to differentiate between asylum seekers themselves using people smugglers and people smugglers. I don't think there's a problem with asylum seekers using people smugglers to find protection. Um, I don't think we should hold anything against them for doing that. I would do it if I was in their situation as well. People have done it for years and years and years, the Second World War, all of that sort of stuff. So the issue isn't about the people using smugglers. Uh, many of them, that's how they found safety. The question is, do smugglers care about them or not? Well, I got thrown up this question at a discussion I had where someone accused me of being dishonest because um, it wasn't really about people drowning. It was the fact that so much disruption by the AFP and the Indonesian police was occurring that the people smugglers, their poor souls, were forced to use terrible boats. 
when you put 150 people on a boat designed for 20 and push it off into the ocean and you get people to board it in the darkness of night so they can't see how bad it is, they're not people I've got a great deal of time for. There are some who probably are motivated by good, but it's not the vast majority and it's a multi-billion dollar industry now and it functions as a multi-billion dollar industry. We were telling them, telling um, guys earlier that uh, um, they are much better marketing than, than we are. We're just crap at it, at, at, at combating people smugglers' marketing. Um, you know, when the announcement was made to release people on bridging visas and remove work rights and to give them only 89% of special benefits, which many of us were sort of outraged about, and of course they will be destitute trying to live on that in Australia. Um, when I was talking to the Australian ambassador in, Indonesia, in Jakarta at the beginning of the year and uh, I asked him about what impact that it had, he said, Paris, that was marketed as by smugglers as, look, the Australian government is now going to give you a special payment if you go. The, the reality is it is a multi-billion dollar industry they're in it to make a lot of money and they don't really care about the well-being of people getting on the boats. I think there will be the odd one that do for humanitarian reasons, but the bar, by and large that's not the case. Your question about Indonesia, very important. <laughs> Indonesia is a vast archipelago. So even if you get agreement in Jakarta, the level of corruption across that archipelago and the ability to bribe officials and the involvement of officials in these activities is widespread. Um, I don't believe for one minute that um, uh, that we can't do better with Indonesia and certainly what we were advising was that we should become much more active in engaging Indonesia in this. But Indonesia's view, as was expressed to us by Indonesians, was that this is our problem and it's our fault, that they are victims of asylum seekers and us, that their fishing crew get locked up and were mandatorily detained for five years. Now, one of the report's recommendations has eliminated that now. So they have an entirely different perspective on this and their fear is that the more generous we become and if they became more supportive and generous is that they would just end up like Malaysia with 100 or 150,000 people there as opposed to whatever the number is now. So it's a difficult negotiation and dialogue to have but there is absolutely no way that we couldn't do it better, be more respectful in the engagement or come up with collaborative strategies. The reason why we promoted the Malaysia arrangement, in part, was that it had the potential to improve the protection space for over 100,000 refugees and asylum seekers in Malaysia because the Malaysian government would have begun to treat them differently. But also, if we got it and made it work in Malaysia, two things could have happened. One is that they would have agreed to do more, but two, it would have increased our chances of getting Indonesia to do more as well, as one of their neighbours were doing. And you can't talk about that publicly and when you write a report because the diplomatic implications of talking about it publicly are very complex. But there's no doubt we could do much better in that regard and we should do much better. Do have any... Paris, there's a difference between people smugglers and crew as well, isn't there? There's, oh, there's a huge difference between people smugglers. Crew are basically 
exploited people who are doing their best to try and make a living for their families and they're being offered probably a year's income um, to, to get a boat here. Sometimes smugglers get on the boat um, and then they have another boat meet them somewhere out at sea and they, they, they deport it. I know in one instance um, when a boat that boats had left and uh, someone in the Hilton in Bali was calling on a sat phone to a search and rescue to say the boat was in distress. Could you go and get it? It wasn't, but that had become part of the strategy for getting the, the Navy and Border Protection to get to boats more quickly, which just created a nightmare for the Navy and Border Protection. The, the increased numbers of boats, by the way, um, will make it impossible for the opposition to implement their towback policy. Um, last time they got around it because they did it four times and it worked. They'll have to do it 300 times. Then Indonesia won't cop it. The risks, people damage the boats. They drill a bung, a hole in it, stick a bung in it and when a Navy boat gets close they pull it out and it turns into a safety of life at sea situation. This is their desperation. And what will happen is it will probably lose a naval officer because when they go into search and rescue mode, their heads go into a different zone and they'll take risks. And when that happens, um, you know, the response will be extraordinary. But there's a very big difference between the crews and the smugglers. Uh, just in front of you, they have a question there. Uh, thanks for a terrific presentation, Paris. Um, I actually wanted to ask a, a question around would you do it again? And I, I want to pose it that... Often after, uh, after the report was released and then the media that ensued afterwards, your name was often used as the poster child as the reason that it was okay. Uh, we had Paris on the uh, expert panel, so that made it okay to do offshore processing was often the line that was uh, plugged. So from that sort of point of view, how did that make you feel and would you do it again? Well, poster, poster boy is an interesting concept. <coughs> terrifying for whoever sticks it up on a wall but um, uh, it's a really good question and I've often wondered whether uh, it was a good idea to do in the first place um, I mean there was nothing in it for me to recommend support the recommendations I mean the, pro the tension that exists for me with some of my good friends is pretty extreme at times um, uh, so you know I didn't personally get a great deal out of it but for the reasons I said in the report I just couldn't really live with myself if I didn't try to do something different if we didn't try to change everything that we've complained about for so long um, when we were going through the recommendations you know it was and we were thinking through strategies and some of them were my ideas as well and, and so forth you know, we kept getting to things where, I mean, I had actively been involved in stopping them. So excision of the mainland, I was one of the primary people who were involved in getting that blocked last time round. Um, I wrote the report with Ida Kaplan from my organisation that got the remaining 27 people off Nauru last time round on mental health grounds. Some of them continue to be clients. I've written papers about it. But this is my point about being honest and having integrity. That sounds a bit conceited and it's not meant to, but we were presented with a whole range of new information. We were presented with new facts and escalating trends. Last month there were 3,300 arrivals, 3,400 arrivals, 2,600 the month before, 2,500 the month before. 
this month they project 4,500 and they project it to be stay at that level or go higher continuously. Now, no one can pretend that this is an insignificant problem now compared to anywhere. So in a sense I made a decision to suck it up and have a go at it. Um, I, got, I had the opportunity to do it with Angus Houston and Michael Lestrange who were extraordinary. They, had, they got nothing in it out of it for them other than the desire to try to help on an important humanitarian and public policy issue. I knew the government would use my reputation and my, my credibility. Um, but this is the point that I made earlier. If you go about it in the right way, then you have a right to expect that they do things properly. And if they don't, you have the right to challenge them on that. So when they removed work rights and said it was due to the no advantage principle, I had a number of interesting conversations with the minister and the prime minister and secured an agreement from them that they would retract the fact that it was due to the no advantage principle and that they would review that decision and it's currently being reviewed at the moment. I don't know what the outcome will be but we're trying to push it in a different direction. At the end of the day though, you can either sit back and stay where you've been and look, it would have been easier. It would have been easier for me to oppose some of the recommendations publicly. It would have been easier... I, I don't oppose any of them, by the way. Um, it would have been easier for me not to do it. Um, but would it have been the most honest thing for me to do when I've got staff who are incredibly distressed because six members of one client's family have just died, seven members of another client's family have just died. We're getting it all of the time. Whoops, almost blew up the laptop then. Um, so I would do it again. Um, there are some things I would do differently. There are things that I know now to be more cautious of. Um, I think in the end I probably would have just been a coward if I hadn't have tried. Um, personally, I think it could have worked. Um, but it, it, the deficit in trust was enormous and it required everybody to take a leap of faith. And I had been through a six-week intensive process of examining all of the new information. And if you get all of that new information and you examine it honestly and it tells you things have shifted then you don't have to change your, your ethics or your morals or your values. You just have to think of other ways of preserving them and applying them to a different and changed environment. That's what we tried to do. Some people disagree with it, but that was the entire motivation. And the tragedy is that we will lose everything. We'll lose the increased quota. We'll lose the money for capacity building. We'll lose family reunion. Um, and we will go back to the purely negative, punitive measures that have existed in the past. And uh, instead of having a platform that may have been imperfect, not that there is perfect here, but that may have had lots of flaws that we could build on, correct those flaws, adapt, adjust, get on board together to make work, I think we'll end up with almost nothing and uh, thousands more people won't get protected. If the report had been implemented as recommended, in the next few years you could have gone to a grand final and looked at the crowd at the MCG and that would have been how many additional refugees that would, we would have protected safely as a consequence. That won't happen now. I guess at the very least you, we could urge people to read the whole report. And, That'd be great. Uh, and if, you know, if people 
agree with the, with the total package of that, not just the little bits that get cherry-picked, then urge for its full impl uh, implementation? Well, I don't know why we don't beat them up with it. Um, it's, uh, but it's not just the government. There are some elements of the recommendations because we didn't want to give any government carte blanche that required the parliament to support it. So the opposition and the Greens need to contemplate it as well. I mean, when people say to me things like, Paris, you're, you know, you, if you say that, argu that ethical argument that if more people will die if you don't do something, that, that we support more people dying, I don't think that about people who oppose it. The reality is, what is their alternative? I've heard some members of parliament go on about this ad nauseum and talk about how everything is terrible. They've never said anything about the fact that the government will fill the 20,000 places this year, an amazing effort, has moved to begin filling the 4,000 family reunion places, has invested in programs in Indonesia that will get 700 kids out of detention in Indonesia and cared for in the Indonesian community while we process them. I, can't, I don't imagine any of you have heard any of that but you would have heard everything about Nauru. You would have seen a Four Corners program that didn't tell you that in the week they were there or the week before they were there, processing had commenced and the voluntary starvation and self-harm rates had plummeted as a consequence because that's all they were hoping for, that they would get a fair go at a process that wasn't happening before. Manus Island is a completely different story. At the moment, I think it's... Uh, my view is it's a disaster at the moment and they should either fix it straight away or shut it. Um, so I would encourage people to read the report. I remember one friend of mine from the sector, I saw at Parliament House in the media thing the day after, racing off to do another interview on Sky. I'm very excited. And um, I said, have you read the report yet? And uh, I won't even give away the gender. The person said, oh, look, I haven't finished it all yet. I'm, I'm getting there. But we can't support it. Now, I mean, I, I don't know what to do with that. You can... It's one thing to be irritated with government not taking things seriously. It's harder to be irritated with your friends. But um, I, I think it's a real... It's a shame. I think there are weaknesses in what, what is reported and the longer it takes to act, the more difficult it becomes. When we did the report, we thought you needed about 4,000 or 5,000 places in a regional system to be able to transfer people back into for it to begin to be effective. With the delays, I think you need eight to 10,000 now and I'm not even sure you'd ever get it. So what are we going to be left with? I'm, I, I'm not sure. Harris, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for your great presentation. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.